This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. My guest this morning is Kanwar Singh, a.k.a. Humble the Poet. He's a poet, rapper, spoken word artist, and author of Unlearn, 101 Simple Truths for a Better Life. Humble, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for having me. There's so much great stuff in this book. Where did all this wisdom come from? I mean, all wisdom comes from the same place. It comes from learning from our experiences. So uh, I made a lot of mistakes, and I think I was fortunate enough to sit and take some time to think deeply about the mistakes. I didn't want to make them again. And in my life, I, I, had, a, I had a pattern of cutting corners, you know, having high expectations and very low patience. And often when that's the case, it's a recipe for disaster. So when I finally kind of hit my breaking point of, you know, everything adding up and me finding myself in a situation I didn't want to be in, uh, something had to change, and that required me to spend less time looking at everything around me and more time looking inside me. And uh, I love learning. I love deconstructing and decoding things. So when it came to my life, um, doing so became essential. And then I started writing it out for my own therapy. And... When I started sharing this online with my audience, you know, they really connected with it, and they actually gave me the idea to write a book. And uh, they helped me uh, figure out the steps to putting a book together, what software to use, 
you know, what independent publishing service I could have used. And, uh, you know, I independently published this book. I crowdfunded this book in 2014 with the help of my online community. And I, you know, I raised about $26,000 from 300 people who contributed. And this book, you know, is a reflection kind of of that journey of me being vulnerable enough to ask for help and, you know, building a stronger connection with those people who were interested in what I had to say. And, you know, three years after publishing it independently, it got picked up in Canada and a few other places, became a bestseller. Uh, and two years later, you know, here I am stateside uh, working with a major publisher to give it its big release. So it sounds like this book was a collaboration with your your listeners, your viewers, your community. So when you started learning stuff and figuring out how to deal with with issues in your own life and shifting the focus from outside and things like blaming the world around us and feeling sorry for ourselves and going inside and doing all this stuff and and talking about it with the people in your community, did they like come to you with with their issues and 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 was that like the impetus for you to to keep working on this stuff and and helping others with that? Yeah, so you know, I, I was making music, and I, I still do make music. You know, what it was was I needed the community I built around my music. I just needed a way to stay in contact with them when I didn't have access to a studio, and, and, and the people I work with weren't available, and I didn't want to be at their mercy. So I think what happened was, you know, I was at my lowest point. I had to quit my job. I had taken a lot of debt. I, had, I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And I was very frustrated, you know, going online, reading motivational quotes that really felt hollow and empty, you know, felt like they were there to make you feel good for about five minutes, you know, and then you kind of fall back into your little rut. And I wanted something a little bit more pragmatic. So I think for me, I started writing until I felt better. And I really was deconstructing how I felt, you know, if I was feeling unhappy, you know, really digging into the idea of unhappiness and what it was. You know, I was an elementary school teacher in a previous life, so just deconstructing it and packaging it in a way that was easy to understand. So for me, it was unhappiness is when the picture in your head doesn't match the picture in front of you. And, you know, when I started sharing that with my online community, just kind of sharing my writing, ensuring that I had stuff out there so people knew I was, you know, still alive. Um, the top comments I would receive is like, wow, you know, it's like you're living in my head. Wow, you're telling my story. Wow, I was just thinking about that same thing last night. And I think it became, you know, an affirmation that we're all in the same boat. And I was serving a purpose of being able to take these heavy ideas and helping to make them feel a little bit lighter by helping to articulate them in some simple words. And I realized that was the service I was providing and then you know, it became a collaborative effort to, you know, they encouraged me to keep going and that motivated me to find, you know, more ideas and dig deeper into myself and into what I saw around me. So it was definitely collaborative on that level. The clarity in your book is so impressive and it's fascinating that it sounds like you, you got a lot out of teaching third graders that you know, how you learn to deal with third graders and the issues of being a teacher and communicating ideas and things to them translated into this book and the way you approach 
talking about this kind of wisdom, what you call simple truths. Completely. I think it was a matter of I had to understand it before I could share it. And I, I wasn't writing this with the goal of making it understandable for other people and making it digestible for other people. I wrote it with the goal of, you know, having this no longer haunt me or be an issue of anxiety for me. And that required me to, you know, if you have any task and it, and it, and it fills you with anxiety or stress, you know, break it down into smaller pieces. And that's exactly what I did. I took, you know, the idea of regret. I took the, the idea of anxiety, heartbreak, expectations, you know, our attitudes, and just kept breaking it down until it became, you know, tried to get it on an atomic level so it became easy for me to understand and grasp. And I could develop mantras for me to say during my hardest times. And it was really just about once I was able to, you know, successfully address issues in my life, you know, sharing it with others, you know, that being the next level for me to, to have the courage to be vulnerable, you know, never realizing that vulnerability and strength kind of go hand in hand. You need the strength to be vulnerable and, you know, sharing that with other people. And then, you know, this no longer just becoming my journey, but this becoming a collective journey and realizing like, wow, like, it's so easy to isolate ourselves when we're going through challenging times. Like it's when people break their heart, you know, they kind of curl up and, and act as if and feel as if nobody understands what they're going through, even though, you know, there's a million songs in the world about heartbreak. Mm-hmm. What it was, is I was working as a teacher and, and, and being an artist on the side and uh, an opportunity arose that I thought would, you know, pay me more money than teaching would, and I could become a full-time artist. And without doing my due diligence and approaching it slowly, I dived headfirst in, and I quit my job expecting a big recording contract to come my way. So what ended up happening was while I was waiting for this contract to, you know, pay me my first installment, I was sitting at home working on music, being like, oh, don't worry, it's okay, I can live off a credit card for two months while this paperwork is processing, and that two months turned into a year, a year of denial. And then, you know, by the time I realized that, hey, this recording contract is not coming through, this money is not coming through, I had accrued a lot of debt. So it was about $80,000 of debt, and I hadn't worked in a year, and now I had no means of income. And that put me in a very dark place because I was very hard on myself for, for making the decisions I made. You know, I kind of felt like an idiot. Like, why did you do this? Like, why would you quit your job? Just because, you know, somebody promised you a record deal and why did you believe this paperwork and why did you trust people that you barely knew and then blaming other people like why didn't anybody want me why didn't you know why did the world do this to me i was, I was so good to people why why would the world do this in, in return and you know really feeling sorry for myself um really you know really being hard on myself and having a lot of self-pity and i isolated myself for two weeks i stayed in bed didn't want to talk to the world. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I felt guilty. And, you know, I think that two weeks was, you know, giving me time to kind of heal over the betrayal I felt, over the frustration I felt. And then eventually I'm like, hey, you got to be an adult about this. You know, it's nobody else's responsibility right now to fix this but you. And that's when I probably learned the first, you know, the first lesson, which was, you know, our problems may not be our fault, but they're still our responsibility. And, at that point, when I started taking responsibility, 
it was a shift in mindset that I probably had never experienced in my entire life. And that was, you know, stop cutting corners, grow up, take some ownership, figure out what you can do, and find your power. And when you take responsibility instead of blaming others, you empower yourself to improve your situation. Mm. And how old were you when you were going through that? Uh, late 20s. Uh-huh. So how did you get out of that situation? How did you, you know, get back above water again? So, you know, there's an, emo- there an emotional drowning and there's also a financial drowning. And um, I think the big thing for me at that point was I was going through both. And I could read a lot of motivational quotes that would address, you know, how to feel better if you, if you feel like you're in the pits. But nothing was like, hey, this is how you pay your mortgage. This is how you get out of debt. And I think what what the the game changer for me it was you know there was no lottery ticket there was no you know nobody came in with a big bag of money and hit me over the head and solved all my problems. What it was was taking ownership and remembering you know the smallest financial literacy tips I had picked up along the way. And one of the biggest ones was you know to to accumulate money is not about you know, how much you make as, versus how much you spend. So I immediately, when I started my path to recovery, I immediately took inventory of, like, everywhere I was spending money, including my own apartment. Uh, I, I owned it, and I was paying a mortgage on it. And I had to make the tough decision to sell it and, and move back in with my parents. And I was pushing 30 at the time. And, you know, I felt very embarrassed, very ashamed. You know, even though nobody was really making me feel bad, doing so, you know, and and even culturally, in my PW culture, like, you know, our parents never want us to leave, even though I left. And, you know, I sold everything I could, you know, everything that wasn't bolted to the floor, all my equipment, all my, you know, my property, and, uh, you know, sold it all, moved back home with my parents, you know, used that to take a little chunk off my debt. Then I started to, you know, throw shows, uh, using a crowdfunding method, picking cities and being like, hey, if we can sell 50 tickets ahead of time, I'll start booking the show. And it took me about four years to get out of debt, you know, to go from negative 80,000 to zero. And it was about the end of 2014 when I finally hit a zero bank account. But the blessing I hadn't realized at that point was once you figure out how to go from negative 80 to zero, then you know how to go from zero to 80. You know, and, and being the green and being the positive. And at the same time, as I was making these incremental improvements on my life and really approaching this with maturity now and, and not feeling sorry for myself that I had to sell stuff, not feeling sorry for myself that, you know, I couldn't live a certain lifestyle. I had to get rid of my car. You know, I avoided dating. I knew I didn't have any money to do that. Uh, you know, my friends, they were taking trips. I, I'd say no. I'd have to miss things. You know, a lot of sacrifices had to be made, but I think it helped me also repair and rebuild my spirit off of that, knowing that I was capable of making these tough decisions and finding progress from that. And, you know, it wasn't until I got to a place of some financial stability and freedom, you know, that I was able to go back to the neighborhood where my condo was and not feel physical pain anymore because it was no longer a giant monument to my failure. But it happened very slowly. This didn't happen overnight. It was at least four years. Mm-hmm. Is that where the name Humble came from, or or were you already using that that name? Oh no, I was already using it. I was already working as an artist, 
but it was you know while I was a teacher, but but then it was just for fun. It was you know it was hey you know spoken word poetry, hip hop music, you know just something fun to do after work. You know I didn't have to earn any money if somebody asked me to perform at a show. So you know I was I was just having fun, and um, I, I wasn't taking it serious because a there aren't too many people in entertainment that look like me. You know, for, for your listeners, I have a beard and turban. I'm, I'm Punjabi, which is North Indian. Um, you know, I didn't grow up seeing entertainers looking like me, so I didn't really take this serious. And B, I wasn't confident enough to do so. And, you know, as the years went on as a teacher, I was earning more and more as a teacher. I was like, hey, you know, I don't want to be a struggling artist. I don't want to be one of these nickel and diamond artists trying to figure out how to pay their rent every month using their art. And the irony of it was judging these artists you know, the the grand irony was I turned into one of them, you know, very quickly. So let, let's talk about your art and your, your music and where that began. Because I've just discovered you in the last week or so, and I've gone online and I, I've watched probably most of your videos. And I really enjoyed your music. And your other videos that you do. I mean, you do social commentary, which which I think is fabulous. And we can also talk about your new album, um, Righteous Ratchet, and what that's about. But I'd like to go back to where this all began for you. And do you play musical instruments, or do you or are you just doing the rapping? Um, I can play some percussion. You know, I, I grew up playing the tabla, you know, the two-piece drum, you know, with my hands. As a child, I learned how to play the harmonium as a child. So I, I, I've always had, you know, and my parents put me into those classes to, to learn how to sing, you know, religious hymns. And, you know, my mother wanted me to know all the hymns. And thankfully, all the, the hymns and Sikh heritage are all, you know, they all rhyme. And they all have a melody to them when we, you know, when we read them or when we were encouraged to memorize them. So, you know, since I was a child, I was kind of being primed to be a rapper and, and to work with sounds and melodies, and cadences and all of that, whether my parents knew it or not. I don't think my mother thought she was training me to, to be a musical artist. She, I think she was just training me to, to sing the glories of God, you know? And um, all my life, you know, I, I was developing the, this talent unknowingly. And at the same time, you know, just being a kid in Canada, you know, growing up, and having two older sisters listening to whatever they listened to. You know, they were listening to New Kids on the Block or whatever, or George Michael or whatever was cool at the time. I just listened to it as well. So, you know, I had a, a diverse range of pop music as my earliest influences. And, you know, I think I discovered Vanilla Ice probably as the first rapper. And my sister having a cassette tape with all the lyrics written on the inside of the cassette. And, you know, just learning lyricism that way. And, again, all of this was fun. And, you know, I wrote poetry here and there. And I think it was while I was a teacher, you know, attending a concert and seeing a spoken word poet perform for the first time and being like, wow, that is super cool. I could probably do that. And that would be a great way to beat some girls. And, you know, and at this, you know, at this point, just thinking very simplistically, not thinking about anything else. And then just kind of writing from my heart, sharing it at coffee shops. and You know, Toronto has a spoken word collective, going to their open mics for a couple of months, and really just doing it for, for the sake of doing it until it started taking a life of its own. And then you start to, 
you know, attract other artists in the same realm as you. And you start collaborating and start learning. And then one day someone's like, hey, you know, my friend has a studio. Let's record some music there. And then you go to the friend's studio and it's just a, you know, a microphone and a mattress. But, you know, it was, it was starting out together. And, you know, I've been, I've been working with pretty much the same people I've been working with since I started 10 years ago. And, you know, watching them evolve, watching my studio engineers, you know, basement go from mattress and a, and, and a microphone to a complete soundproof booth and, you know, a lot of audio equipment. So it was a very slow organic growth. And in the beginning, I was really just chasing the fun, not thinking anything of it. So, you know, not taking it too seriously and, you know, just enjoying the fruits of putting some music online and then getting recognized locally for it. And, you know, a great icebreaker to meet people, you know, a great way to get invited to some parties, you know, extremely harmless. And I think my subject matter, though, I would talk about things that I was super interested in, whether it was geopolitics, and then eventually that turned into, you know, the human condition. And then at that point, you know, taking things deeper really started building a resolve for me to use this as my mouthpiece to talk about things that matter to me. And, um, you know, things slowly evolved, you know, from my students figuring out I made music, the people around me, to getting phone calls and invites to perform in different cities, and people flying me out. And again, I wasn't earning a lot of money doing this, but I was having a lot of fun. And, you know, it probably got to a point where I felt a little bit entitled that I should be doing this full time. Um, but I wasn't willing to pull that trigger until, you know, somebody came to me with it, what I thought was a record deal. Um, you know, and it didn't end up being one, but it was definitely an essential moment in my life because it did help me pull the trigger to become a full-time artist. And it's been 10 years now, but that first, you know, first five years was extremely, extremely difficult. I, I like to tell people that I'm a recent graduate of the school of being a struggling artist. Mm-hmm. And one of the qualities that I really love about your videos is this collaboration. You're almost always collaborating with somebody, and there's this wonderful spirit of, of joy in what you're doing, that you guys are always having fun, and you always have this big smile on your face. And so you, you've really come a long way in, in how you, you got through all that stuff. Yeah, and I think I also realized that that's probably what I was really chasing. I think, you know, there was always the artist inside me, and I was probably an artist wearing a mask, you know, as a teacher or, or, or anything else, and thinking being an artist is a privilege. Um, you know, now I know, you know, being an artist is a responsibility. You know, I'm part of a system. Um, you know, uh, people go to work and they're stuck in traffic. You know, they turn on the radio, and if they're not listening to the news, they're consuming art. You know, they they, they decorate their cubicles. They they, you know, they go to the theater, they go to the movies, they, they, they sit at home and watch Netflix, they're consuming art, you know, and that's important. It's important to keep, you know, to make life, to keep life beautiful. Art is, you know, art is advertising the things that matter, you know. Painting a picture of a tree is a billboard to remember, to remind people to appreciate trees. And for me, for the longest time, I didn't realize that this is who I was. It wasn't who I wanted to be. It really was who I was, and what I needed 
you know, it felt isolating. I never felt like I had people who understood me until I started meeting other artists. So I think the moment I was able to start collaborating with people, it wasn't about, oh, let me just work with this person. They'll help me get further in my career. It was like, oh, I have community now. Like, you know, you could dangle community like a carrot on a stick and I would chase it. Um, so any opportunity to meet new people, work with new people, learn from people, it was so essential to me. Um, you know, I had two sisters, no brothers. So, you know, I was in this pursuit to have brotherly figures in my life. And, you know, sometimes that, that, you know, bit me in the butt. Other times it was the most beautiful experience I could ever have. And you mentioned that when you were teaching that your students started discovering that, that you were doing music. Did you ever perform in class for them? Um, I didn't do anything on a, on a high level, you know, where I tried to perform for them. I think, you know, once, you know, probably in the last two years of my career, it was, it was apparent that, you know, kids, you know, I was teaching the third grade and the fourth grade, you know, they knew how to use YouTube. They were finding my stuff. They knew the name Humble the Poet. You know, by then, kids in other classes knew who I was. and They were looking forward to being in my class. Uh, I would do, I would use poetry a lot to teach lessons. You know, if I taught them what a noun was, and make them write poems and underline all the nouns. You know, I would take certain verses from hip-hop, you know, have the kids perform it, and then use that as a, a lesson for, okay, well, now let's see if we can find any similes. Let's see if we can find any verbs. You know, let's see if we can count syllables. So I would use songs that they already knew that they were hearing on the radio and kind of and, and breaking them down. So I think from that, I, I did a lot of that. Um, I didn't do too much performing. I think I was asked to perform at, at maybe you know, the staff Christmas party. But I think beyond that, I didn't do too much with the kids. You know, I was so nervous about leading this double life and not sure if everybody would appreciate it. Yeah, I guess what I was meaning is, like, just doing the raw poetry and rap in the class in front of the kids. And it sounds like you were engaging them and getting them to to use, you know, the stuff that they were into. Completely. I love that approach. I think our education system could really use a lot more of that kind of interactive bringing in the stuff that that kids are are into into the education process do you miss teaching kids or do you miss the kids i mean i miss i mean the being in the classroom there's two parts to the job there was you know everything before the bell the paperwork the, the internal employee politics uh, you know, all the extracurricular activities that your principal will sign you up for. And then the bell rings and the kids are in the room. And, you know, there's a lot more energy and magic and and simplicity, you know. And, 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 you know, every time I was around children, it reminded me of, you know, where I came from, the empty vessel I was. It would always make me want to challenge my own biases and be like, hey, these kids are literally empty vessels. I was once an empty vessel, and I think it was really refreshing to remember. I think what I loved the most was sharing with them, you know, lighting, you know, education isn't filling up a bucket. It isn't filling up heads with knowledge. It's lighting a fire. And I think, you know, the the way the school system is set up and, you know, budget cutbacks and all of that is really set up against the teacher, you know, and it's up to the teacher to kind of work with all these things working against them. And I think for me, that got frustrating um, I enjoyed inspiring the children. I didn't enjoy all the paperwork and the, uh, you know, bureaucracy that kind of came with it. So I think the elements of teaching and educating, um, I found them 
you know, in my current work now. And I kind of feel like it's, hey, you know, I, I wrote this book. Uh, it's educating people, but I don't got to stick around to, you know, administer the final test. You know, I don't have to have an emotional stake in the outcome of every individual reader and, and, and figure out that part. I can focus on my love of learning and sharing my love of learning, which is what I really appreciated about being a teacher. Um, being around kids is always, you know, it goes either way. They can, they can fill you up with energy. They can drain you with energy depending on the day. So, I mean, I got nieces and nephews, and I enjoy them in small doses, um, and that's enough for me. So I don't think I'll be back in the classroom uh, anytime soon. Let's talk about unlearning. When you say unlearn, what do you mean by unlearn and unlearning, and why is, why is that important? Um, it was realizing once I started finding improvements in my life, it wasn't because I was acquiring anything new or even just learning a new lesson. It was because I was letting go of old ideas, old, uh, you know, old idealisms, old values, old beliefs, old biases, you know, old traditions, old thoughts. And, and I was unlearning these to make room for new ideas. You can't just simply learn a new idea if you have a conflicting idea in your head. You know, so the idea that, you know, hey, I could be a full-time creative, you know, before I could believe that, I had to unlearn the idea that I had to pursue a safe and stable job. I had to, you know, I had to let go of the idea that having a full-time salary is the best thing anybody could ever do. I think even now our, our economy is proving that, you know, being an entrepreneur is just as stable you know, because, there's, you know, as a teacher, you know, every year there's budget cutback and teachers are getting let, let go. So it's kind of like, you know, plugging yourself into the system doesn't guarantee you any more stability. But so I had to unlearn that idea because my parents always put that in. My parents are immigrants. So, you know, they always put it in my head. Get a good job. Get a safe job. Stick to the script. You know, stick to the template. So, you know, really having to unlearn that. And that's the thing with everybody, you know, if you, if you, if you get broken up with, you know, if you the love of your life breaks up with you and you're like, I can't live without them, you know, you're going to have to unlearn that idea that you needed such a dependency on somebody else before you can kind of find your strength and move forward independently. So unlearn is the idea that we can gain so much from letting go. You know, f pursuing your passions, another tricky thing in this, because you, you, you talked about having to let go of the notion that you can do that or do something sort of like running before you learn to walk maybe and unlearning unrealistic ideas. But when it comes to following our passion in our society, you know, there, there's a lot of lip service to following our passion, but then most of what we get from people is you got to be realistic. You got to be practical. You got to get a job. You know, you got to be an adult. You got to be responsible how does that fit into the equation with with being able to f really follow your passions? Yeah, I think it's a it's a combination on both ends of that spectrum that have to be addressed. I think from the passion side of it, I, I don't think people should follow their passions. Um, I think oftentimes, you know, we are we are a work of art in progress. We're we're, we're really figuring ourselves out as we go. And sometimes it's very challenging for us to identify what our actual passions are. You know, that's a lot of internal work to figure out who you are at your core and, and what naturally excites you. And so often 
we fall in love with a a a consequence of something and we think that's our passion so we'll say oh i want to be a full-time musician but really what we're saying is oh i want to be free and creative and and all of these things and we haven't done the work to to kind of identify that so i always tell people your passion is what you want to do your obsession is what you have to do and i want people to focus on their obsessions and i'm not even sure we get to pick our obsessions you know, I think the way I think and the way I deconstruct things and, and love learning things and get so excited over that, I'm not sure this was taught to me. I think this is a an archetype that I am, and I think there's other people that enjoy taking chaos and bringing and and you know bringing it back into some form of control. You know, and these are the people that become the best you know COOs and the best you know managers, and and they enjoy taking complex puzzles and, and making them simple. Like there's so many. Um, different archetypes and enthusiasms and i think you know simply be like oh, okay so you, you you know you're working at a fast food restaurant and you dream of being a photographer you know um you know just chase the passion i think no i think first figure out what about photography is actually lighting your fire and then on the other side when people say be realistic i want to say hey you know what's realistic is to live life on your own terms because realistically one day your life will no longer exist and, you know, you're going to look back and, and wish you, you lived it on your own terms. However, I think it is important to be pragmatic. You know, I'm not, I'm not telling people that I went from $80,000 of debt and got out of that, you know, by snapping my fingers. It took four years of small shows, you know, creating products that I could sell, you know, living at home with my parents in my 30s. You know, it was very slow, but it taught me a lot, and it taught me how to earn as a creative. Uh, I focused on being pragmatic and practical. Um, realistic is, you know, is, is a great way to kill somebody's dreams, but telling people to be pragmatic about it, I think, is fantastic. I think if somebody enjoys painting pictures of apples, you know, and saying, hey, look, if you had a day job and you enjoy painting pictures of apples, you don't have to quit everything to paint the pictures, you know, Spend two hours every day after work painting and look at your job as, you know, a way to finance this passion or this enthusiasm that you have. And let things naturally come. You know, you could probably throw an entire art exhibit while you still have a full-time job and see how much art you sell. Maybe you sell a bunch of art and now you can afford to take five months off. You know, somebody I know just recently took half a year off um, after saving for three years to take half a year off and now they take half a year off and you know they're going to work as a fashion stylist and they're going to spend six months finding um clients that they can work with and they have six months to see how much money they can earn um before and if they don't earn enough money they'll go back to work and try it again and i think that pragmatic you know the pragmatism is important and so often we exist on such extreme ends of the spectrum where you know, people are like, oh, well, you got to be more realistic. How are you going to earn if you're trying to be an author? How are you going to earn if you're trying to be a musician? And the questions are valid. You know, let's start small. Let's do baby steps. If you're 100%, you know, into a day job right now, become 90-10 and then maybe 80-20. Let's make a transition slowly. And at the same time, you'll start to realize that maybe your passion isn't what you think it is. You know, maybe what you're doing is just one way to scratch that itch. And, and I've seen it so many times where people start in one world. And, you know, even for me, I thought I was a rapper. And I realized that, you know, I'm a creator. I'm a maker. 
I'm a writer. You know, I, I, you know, after having to create my own music videos because we couldn't we couldn't afford to hire anybody. You know, I evolved and and now I you know been doing it for ten years. I have a team. My my videos have become very cinematic, and you know, my next project's going to be a short film. Uh, you know, I didn't start with short films. I didn't skip any steps. You know, I started with you know, handheld cameras, music videos, then working with the cool equipment, and now moving up to the next level. So, you know, we overestimate what we can do in a day, and we underestimate what we can do in a year. And I think people need to have a better relationship with their timelines and their expectations. And, you know, most anybody can create a life on their own terms. It will not happen overnight. It'll probably not happen in a year. You know, I'm a I am a full-time artist, and, and I am earning well off my, my creativity and my ideas. But again, I'm also 10 years into it, you know. Uh, the general rule of thumb is it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> so that dispels, or probably dispels, a lot of the illusions around being an artist, being a successful artist. Yes, I mean, and there will always be that overnight story that, you know, the media loves, you know, that romantic story of getting discovered, seen on a street corner. But, I mean, I've noticed the vast majority of, for the vast majority of people, the quicker it comes, the quicker it goes. You know, you don't want to skip steps. Right. And also, super quick success, people often lose their sanity when it happens that fast. Exactly. It's like, you know, piling up 100 pounds on top of somebody. You know, I always think about this story I used to read to the kids about, you know, a, a young man wanting to impress a woman. And he went to a wise old lady. He's like, how do I win this woman over? She's like, you know, take this little piglet that I'm going to give you and carry it up the mountain every day and let it drink from the water at the top of the mountain. And he did it, you know, every day for a year. And at the end of the year, he was a big, strong man. But the reason he got big and strong was because every day the pig got heavier and heavier. But it was gradual. So he got stronger gradually. And, you know, if you gave him a full-blown pig when he first started, you wouldn't have been able to carry it up the mountain. And it's the same thing. Sometimes I have experiences of like, whoa, if I was 10 years younger when this happened, I would have totally messed this up. You know, um, you know, being grateful that I'm, you know, I have a few years under my belt that I can handle some of these situations because, you know, this stuff is... Fame, especially fame, is not the healthiest thing for your ego and your self-identity. And I was like, wow, I can't even imagine, you know, how people have this level of fame or even, this, you know, have this much money in their bank account without messing it all up at the age of 20, 21. So I think, you know, I'm not trying to dispel any rumors. I'm just telling people to to focus, you know, respect their timeline. You know, things take time to come to life. You plant a seed there's very little you can do to make that tree grow any quicker. You have a new album, or a relatively new album, Righteous Ratchet. What's that about? Where did the title of that come from, and what does that mean? Um, Righteous and Ratchet, you know, kind of ends of the end of the spectrum. You know, I I, I I write a lot about social issues. I write a lot about ideas. And, you know, I, I write about things that I think will better people. But that doesn't mean I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a goody two shoes. I don't have fun. I don't make mistakes. And, you know, I don't make irresponsible decisions. We all do. So I think for me, it was about, you know, talking about important ideas without people assuming that I'm trying to be holier than thou. So, you know, 
Righteous and Ratchet was an exploration of everything in between being righteous and ratchet, you know, exist, you know, you have the devil and the angel on your shoulders, you know, that means you exist in between them. You know, my brain exists in between the devil and the angel and every, everything in between. And it's nothing about it being right or wrong. It's just how it is. Life isn't black and white. It's multiple shades of gray. It's a gradient. And Righteous and Ratchet was exploring that idea. But, you know, having music that was, you know, would make you think and having, you know, my, 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 my catchphrase is, you know, shake your ass, shake your mind, shake your heart all at the same time. Mm. So where can people find your music and check out your videos and, and your art, your, your work in general? Um, so everything, you can find everything at humblethepoet.com. I mean, my music is streaming everywhere. So you'll find me on Spotify, Apple Music. You know, all my music videos are on YouTube. I have my own channel. So, you know, youtube.com slash humblethepoet. You know, I'm sure you can type in Humble the Poet on, on YouTube and you'll find, not only you'll find my music, you'll find my social commentaries, you'll find me reading from the book. You know, my book is available everywhere books are sold. So, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, at every independent bookstore, you know, independent bookstores matter, so go ahead and support them and buy my book from there. Um, it's also available on Audible. You know, one of the great things about being a rapper was I had a lot of comfort in the studio to record the audio version of my book. So, you know, that's available on Audible. And, you know, there's a digital version on Kindle. So, you know, all my work is easily accessible. You can literally just type in Humble the Poet in Google, and, you know, all my stuff will pop up. So I'd like to play a single from your new album. It's called Hair. Could you talk about this piece? Yeah. So, you know, me being a very logical person, you know, really thinking things logically and through. I wanted to spend more time focusing on emotions and feelings. You know, the, the Maya Angelou quote, people won't remember what you did or what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. So trying to make more music that had a feeling. So hair, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit silly, a little bit fun. And it's kind of, you know, the, the, the chorus is about, you know, my struggles with, 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 a, with a beautiful young lady who... You know, she's getting on my last nerve, but no matter how much she annoys me or bothers me, you know, I still love the way, you know, her hair feels. You know, her hair is very soft, and no matter how much she gets on my nerves, it's not going to make her hair any more coarse. So I just pretty much say, you know, I love the way your hair feels. Even if we're not compatible, I still love the way your hair feels. And I'm celebrating all the wonderful things that just feel good in life, you know, walking on the grass uh, barefoot, you know, seeing a sunrise, you know, seeing a sunset, you know, all these things that, you know, just kind of wake wake people up and, and they all have their own versions of it. So, you know, that's what hair was, just a beautifully beautifully produced piece of work that just happened when, I, when me and Keith Rice, the producer, you know, we just spent a day procrastinating. We were supposed to work on music. We spent a day procrastinating, going for a long walk, chatting, you know, eating junk food, going to the corner store, buying a bunch of chocolate, you know, and then finally sitting down and he just played that riff and the rest was history. So we're going to hear Hair from the new Righteous and Ratchet album by our guest, Humble the Poet. Throw a fool your city now, it feel like a 
beginning out a rookie of the decade in the record always spinning out i'm living out my every dream i'm wide awake and never skin gonna hit the mark like laser beam and we won't stop as major things just throw them up That you showing up, so pop that shit and pull it up And I salam alaikum, sussy calling What it do, a couple breakups, couple makeups Now I wake up next to you You last fall, right up to the summer 31st of February, you were never coming But I love the way your hair feels Yeah, I love the way your hair feels I like you in July, love you in September Traffic in LA, I thought this was forever But I love the way your hair feels I said love the way your hair feels You shine, you shine, you shine Sunset on the beach Sunrise from the hill Bare feet on the grass And that time we smash Outcast on deck Spinning on my mind And I'm always on my grind I love you last fall Right up to the summer 31st of February You were never coming But I love the way your hair feels I still love the way your hair feels I liked you in July Loved you in September Like the traffic in LA I thought this was forever And I love the way your hair feels I still love the way Big beard, few tats, few years In the game length thing, they can hang with the man But a blue pass, you knew here These dudes here, suck like they still on They mama did it, boy No squares inside the player's circle Local celeb in your city, boy Focus that energy, get it, boy Never the enemies kill him, boy Make him a memory, show up and let me see Giving up, never me, get it, boy And a lot of way your hair feels And everything you do is real And every single move feels like Those promises you making to yourself, the world is always weighing on your chest. Just bench it up and out, and I say assalamu alaikum. Sussy calling, what it do? Couple breakups, couple makeups. Now I wake up next to you. You last fall, right up to the summer. 31st of February, you were never coming, but I love the way your hair feels. Yeah, I love the way your hair feels. I like you in July, love you in September. Traffic in LA, I thought this was forever, but I love the way your hair feels. I said, love the way your hair feels. much for watching this video share this with people that you care about and people that you don't much love that's just so good then that's hair from my guest humble the poet from his new album righteous ratchet and this is wgdr plainfield wgdh hardwick goddard college community radio the magical mystery tour i also really enjoyed 
the different textures and, and sound qualities and musicality of that piece. Yeah, uh, Keith Rice uh, out of Los Angeles who produced that. He's just he's a wizard. You can you can put him anywhere. You don't you don't even have to give him an instrument. He's going to find a way to create music. It's, it's amazing what he can do. It sounds like you have a wonderful artistic community that that you get to play with, and I I understand that you go back and forth between Toronto and L.A. Do you have yeah. do you have musical communities? in both Toronto and L.A., or, or how does that work for you? Yeah, so I, I have, I work with producers and other artists out of Toronto, you know, that being home base, and then going out to L.A. and slowly building a, a community out there. And, you know, L.A. is where everybody from the small towns congregates. You know, that's where the pros are at. That's where you go to, to take things to the next level. So, you know, there's no shortage of super talented people in that city. And, you know, coming out there to make their dreams come alive. And, you know, I remember once attending a movie premiere and, you know, at the at the red carpet, the people in charge of manning the photo booth, you know, them saying, hey, we got a band. Come over to our place tomorrow and let's riff, you know, and making friends with them, you know, meeting, you know, ushers, you know, meeting Uber drivers who were, you know, working on music, meeting people, you know, working at the grocery store who were working on music. You know, everybody had to you know, while they're figuring out their artistic career, had to, you know, work another job and always being open to just finding people and connecting with them and, and, and creating great stuff. So, you know, uh, I'm making artistic communities everywhere. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into everybody's business and, and work with as many people as I can, you know. Uh, the more, the more people, the better. The more, you know, the less isolating, you know, I feel uh, by myself. So, Toronto, I got one. You know, New York. You know, New York. I'm developing a community out here as well. You know, I'm currently in Brooklyn right now as we speak, uh, doing you know press for the book, but also you know meeting musicians out here, you know, and going to jam sessions, and it's been fantastic. Sounds like that's a a big part of your obsession is is the community aspect of it. Yes, I mean, I, th- I think it's essential. I think we, we all want communities, you know. If you enjoy looking at the stars through your telescope, you know, you want to join an astronomy club, you know. If you, you know, enjoy playing a sport, you know, you want to you wanna go and either get on the, the forums and, and chat about it online or, you know, go out and join a league. You know, I think the community part, feeling, feeling that you're a part of something bigger than yourself, I think is essential for all people. And for me, you know, especially as a creative, you know, so often I'll, I'll go for a walk down the street and pass by a mirror and then take a look at myself and be like, whoa, you know, when did we start looking so funky? Like when did, you know, not realizing that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I start to stand out on the streets now with the colors and, and the textures that I'm wearing. I'm like, wow, like I remember being a kid and seeing these eccentric artists and being like, ooh, who are these weirdos? And, and all of a sudden be like, oh, my God, I'm one of these weirdos. Be like, I don't feel like a weirdo, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of these weirdos now. And let me embrace it. Let me find other people. And it's been great, especially, you know, I got a turban and a beard. And growing up, I went through a lot of races. Now the tides are changing where, you know, people are like, wow, you look like an artist. You look like a writer. You know, somebody once came up to me at Lollapalooza and asked me a question about, you know, where the musician, the artist had to check in. He goes, hey, you look like an artist. Uh, where do we check in? And I was like, you know, I appreciate the, uh, you know, the assumptions, you know, it's a lot healthier than what I used to go through when I was a kid. 
you also create and come up with new ideas. Talk about that and some of the ideas that you've had and that are going through your head these days. Yeah, I mean, the simple concept of having a spark in my brain and being able to watch it come to life in, in a tangible form, whether it's, it's something I can just jot on a piece of paper or something that's going to take six months to create. You know, it's such a, it's like giving birth. It's so exciting for me. And, you know, it's really, that turns into, you know, there's no pot of gold at the end of my rainbow. It's just more rainbow. And I, and I love it. I try to focus on the journey and not really concern myself with the destination. And, you know, now, you know, I'll be working on a short film soon, exploring addiction. And this is something that's been floating in my brain for the last five years, you know, and there's certain scenes I've created in my head that, you know, make me cry when I think about them. And I'm, I get excited to, to bring this to life and finding actors and actresses that could bring these characters to life. And, you know, having, and I had a meeting, you know, in the city last night, uh, you know, with a label to, to, you know, get some, secure some funding to make it happen. And being able to, you know, while I'm pitching the idea, you know, holding back tears, you know, being able to show that level of commitment and excitement and, and to see, you know, to be in a boardroom full of executives, they're all, they're all excited about it. They all see what I'm trying to do. They all understand that, you know, there are certain artists that you can, you know, turn into a commodity and, you know, bang out the hits and, 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 you know, make the company money. And then there's certain artists like me that are focusing on a cultural impact. You know, I want, I want to, I want to shift perspective and, and, and global bias and, and, and our worldviews. And that's the important part. And that's how we're going to measure the work. We're not going to be able to measure it in terms of how many views did he get? How many streams did he get? It's going to be, you know, who were we before this work came out? Who were we after the work came out? And, it's exciting that people are seeing that vision. And as well as, you know, having a very successful book, you know, is, is helping me fund all this art myself. So I don't have, I have my own leverage in case any of the partners I try to work with, you know, stop, you know, get cold feet. I can, I can, I can, I can, I can pay for the stuff myself. And that's very liberating and exciting. So how has addiction touched your life in a way that you want to give something back or, do something positive with it. You know, a lot of my family members have had, you know, unpleasant relationships with alcohol. You know, the irony, my mother has four brothers and she lost two to alcohol. One got divorced and, you know, kind of his, he felt like his life fell into shambles and he drank himself to death. The other brother, you know, on the contrary, he won the lottery. You know, he won the lottery in the 70s, moved back to India and, you know, where he was able to pretty much stretch that money to live forever and never have to work another day. And within two years, he drank himself to death. And, you know, kind of seeing that, you know, alcohol is a common theme in the equation, even if it was good news or bad. And, you know, in the South Asian community, I think in a lot of communities, alcohol alcoholism is, is becoming an issue. And really wanting to explore that from a perspective of compassion. And, and I want people to understand that we are, we're all addicted to something. You know, many people are addicted to picking up their phones. Many people are addicted to salt and sugar. You know, people are addicted to self-pity. You know, there's a million things that, you know, people can become addicted to. And I feel like if we help people become more aware of their own addictions, they'll be able to view people who have chemical addictions or substance abuse uh, issues 
with a little bit more compassion and understanding that, you know, the, the, the key idea I want to get across is that the opposite of addiction is sobriety, it's connection. So sometimes if somebody in your life is struggling with addiction, shaming them or guilting them or isolating them is only going to make it worse. You know, so we, as you know, people on the on the on the outskirts uh, of of the of these people struggling with addiction, we have a responsibility to, to to figure out the right tools. You know, and again, nobody is is trained in life how to deal with addiction if, if they're addicted to something, nor is somebody you know gets the training in life how to have an you know a husband who has an addiction or a wife or, or a mother or a child. So you know, really. Encouraging, you know, the overarching idea in all my work is spend t- less time judging, spend more time understanding, and it's the same thing. So I want to, I want to take that idea and explore addiction with that uh, through a short film music video. So it'll be a short film that probably contains three to five songs, and it'll be like my Kanye West Runaway. <laughs> and that made me think of probably my favorite video of yours, or at least one of them, and that is the uh, Blame Muslims video with the kids. And oh, I, with the kids. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to play that because I think that that shows another side of the spectrum of your creativity by our guest, Humble the Poet. My coffee's too hot. Blame Muslims. Starbucks is too pricey. Blame Muslims. What does a girl have to do to get a vanilla bean frappuccino? They invented Java, and I'm so addicted. So now I'm blaming all of them for what they inflicted. My neighbor's so loud. Blame Muslims. Always playing his guitar. Blame Muslims. I mean, they invented the thing, and I'm so sick of those strings. So I'ma blame every single Muslim. And that's the new rule. I hated algebra in school. And Muslims invented that, so I guess all Muslims are whack. Blame Muslims for tuition fees. They invented university. They also invented hospitals. And a bunch of different surgeries. It sounds like you don't have health care. As a kid, I hated brushing my teeth. Guess who started that? And even if it was only one Muslim, they all deserve the slack. The list can go on. And I'll never finish. What's most important is that we blame those who did it. And remember, if one of them did it, that means they're all the same. So if we're going to blame them for terrorism, let's blame them for clocks and cameras. That line didn't rhyme, but I got you listening. Can't trust the news. All of it's fiction. Ain't no moral to the story. Just a lot of finger pointing. If this poem sounds stupid, maybe that's what my point is. We can't take the actions of a fraction and put it on the whole. Whether good or bad, that don't accomplish a goal. That's just a simple way of thinking. Let's leave that to simple minds. Who have simple thoughts and believe simple lies. I don't blame every priest when one touches a boy. Let's afford that same respect to everyone else in the story. Cause hate holds no glory. It only feeds fear. So give credit where credit's due and send that racist bullshit. 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 Send that racist bullshit to the rear. Love, 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 love. Thank you so much for watching. Much love to Brandon, Kareen, and Will, and all the children for being part of such a wonderful project. I had so much fun working with all of you. Last but not least, shout outs to the ACLU. We dedicate this video to you. You fight the good fight. I am making a donation to the ACLU. I encourage you all to do the same. This is a spoken word poem of my project, Righteous and Ratchet. Please share this with people you care about and people that you don't. Much love. 
I really love that. I love the intelligence, the innate intelligence of kids and the way they can just tell it like it is so easily because they have so much less to unlearn than, than the rest of us. Completely. And that, that was probably, you know, when you said you missed the kids and teaching, that was definitely that moment. It was a two-day shoot. And I came back buzzing both both evenings after working with the kids and being like, wow, this is fun. And, um, you know, so, so some of the kids were really young and it was, you know, a lot of challenge to get them to, to say certain lines. And, um, you know, their attention spans are different. And it, it was just, it, it really brought me back. But it was, it was epic. It was fun. I was so happy. You know, all the parents were there. And, you know, everybody, you know, some parents were like, sure, they can swear. They're swearing all the time anyway. So they might as well swear for some art. And it was a, it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I've actually stayed in contact with some of the kids and, you know, trying to help them. Some of them are, are aspiring actors and actresses and, you know, trying my best to help uh, uh, get them some, some opportunities. And some of them have got opportunities after that. So I feel good about that. And a lot of these videos that you have up on YouTube are directly related to the issues in your book and addressing social issues, human condition issues, and things that uh, that really touch the lives of of many, if not all of us, in in one way or another. Completely. I mean, like you know, blame Muslims. You know, I'm I'm from Sikh heritage, so I have a turban and a beard, and most people, because of mainstream media, think that I'm Muslim. And the problem is when, when I encounter some sort of Islamophobia, even though I'm not Muslim, you know, I'm left in this precarious situation. And I'm like, well, what do I do? Do I correct this person? and be like, hey, I'm not Muslim. Go find a real Muslim to be racist towards. Or do I find something funny about this? And I'm just like, hey, look, you know, the, the Muslim community gets credit for, you know, discovering coffee, you know, inventing universities, hospitals. Like, if we're going to have this collective mindset, you know, towards hating an entire group of people for, you know, what a, a small minority does, then, you know, let's do that for the funny stuff. Let's, 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 let's give all Muslims credit for inventing the camera and guitars and, and other things and, you know, having kids complain about having to brush their teeth, you know, and that was something that was also, you know, invented in the Muslim world. So it was, it was just me trying to find a way to laugh at something that was obviously very serious. And one of the people that you, you do a lot of collaborating with is Lily Singh, a.k.a. Superwoman. I would yeah. love for you to talk about her and your relationship with her, because I love watching you in these videos working with other people, this, this spirit of collaboration and, and fun and silliness and just being really playful. Yeah, so we... Uh we met in Toronto back probably 2010, and back then I was probably a handful, one of a handful of people in the city using YouTube, you know, as a creative outlet. And she had reached out that she wanted to do the same, and you know, a creative partnership kind of formed where if I needed help, she'd hold the camera. She needed help, I'd be an extra or something like that. And you know, we started our full-time creative journey together. And, uh, you know, things have moved so fantastically for her. She worked super hard. And, um, you know, she never abandoned those that she started with. And, you know, for a couple of years, she, you know, helped me. She gave me a place to stay in Los Angeles. And that that was, a you know, gave me a lot of space to figure out who I was and, and what I had to do and kind of, uh, you know, incubated me 
well, you know, and, and provided me with resources and understanding and, and know-how to, to move forward. And, I mean, I'm proud to say that, you know, we're still very good friends and, you know, we spend a lot more time hanging out and having fun than actually working with each other now. But it, it, it's great. And, uh, you know, now she's, she just got her own NBC show. You know, she she's dominated YouTube on, on such a level, you know, that people have never really seen before. And uh, it's been really good because she's, uh, you know, we, we, we feed off each other's energy. And, you know, I'm, I'm still there. I'm still staying at her place when I'm in L.A. And, you know, but we don't work on, on as much projects as we do as we used to. And it's probably because I, I spend more time on, in the book world than I have in the music world in the past couple of years. But, um, you know, even once the book dropped, you know, she shared it with her community of 8 million strong. And, you know, that definitely helped move the needle when it came to getting people to connect with this book and, and getting it on certain people's radars. So I'm eternally grateful for that relationship. What is one of your favorite videos that you've done Right now, it'd probably be I Will, just because, you know, I think after the video for Hair, um, that was the first time I worked with the team at Parliament Pictures. And, uh, you know, at that point, I was like, wow, we pulled it off. You know, we pulled off the vision. So I was like, hey, let's just let's, let's just get grander and weirder and, and more eccentric. So what can we do? So, you know, the music video for I Will, which took much longer, took about six months, you know, from sparking my brain to, to being out in the world, um, you know, that, that that was the one where I was like, okay, let's see if we can push our limits. And, you know, we created this, this beautiful aesthetic piece inspired by the 1979 film, The Warriors. And, uh, you know, it was, I think it's about 18 different scenes. And, you know, we shot it over six months. And, you know, I got to edit it myself after, but it was... Uh, this is a beautiful feat, and I think it came out a year ago. And then after that, I had to kind of get back into the book world and just sign my publishing deal, and I had to start writing the next book. So uh, you know, it's whenever I feel like procrastinating on the writing, I, I visit that video and ask myself, "What's next? How can I top this?" I have it now directly on YouTube. Is it clean for the radio? Um, probably not. <laughs> I don't think any of my stuff is clean for the radio. Yeah, I'm watching so the video I, right now. I, I love your playfulness. And I, I really encourage... I mean, I'm just trying to have fun, yeah. I really encourage people to go online, check out your stuff on YouTube, Humble the Poet. I love the way you think, and I love your attitude toward life. I mean, I'm really impressed by what you're doing. I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, it, it, it's been a, a long journey, and I, and I feel like I have long ways to go, and I'm excited to continue going because I feel like I, I'm in a space right now where I can prioritize the learning and the growing and the creativity, uh, you know, for the first time. You know, if this was five years ago. I had to be a lot more pragmatic and focus on paying my bills. I, I had to become an involuntary minimalist to, to survive those years, and, and I've gotten used to it. I enjoy living simply, and uh, I just put all my energy, love, resources, and money into the art, and, and I would have it no other way. You've put in the time, you've gone through the hard knocks, and you've come out the other end, and you're, you're, living, you're living your dream, it sounds like. I mean, for now, I'm, I'm, I don't think we get to live a life without challenges. I mean, I definitely have challenges, and 
you know, especially, you know, in, in, in the book world, it's a, it's a whole new space for me signing with a major publisher and, 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 and understanding that, you know, in the digital world, when I'm done my music video, I upload it tomorrow and, and you know, press go live and the video is out for the world to digest. And, you know, its momentum will, will, will exist for about three days before, you know, it starts to taper off and I have to worry about the next project. In the book world, things are measured in months. So, you know, being very analog, it's been a, a, quite a challenge for me to kind of adjust accordingly. So I, I think the, the dream is, is to be creative. The pragmatic side to me is understanding that there will always be challenges no matter what you do. And uh, embrace those challenges with a smile. They're not going to go away. Nobody is living a life without challenges. There is no happily ever after. You know, the end is when we take our last breath. And up until that last breath, we'll be addressing different challenges struggles and that's okay that's what life is life you know as i said in the book life doesn't begin after the obstacles life is the obstacles right and this book is done and your next project you say is creating a short film so how far into that are you and what are the challenges of doing that what what are the unique challenges of that that are different than than just being able to click something to upload a music video or a song to YouTube? From a creative standpoint, I mean, it's, you know, you're outlining, you know, it's a slow process. The bigger the project, the slower it's going to move. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of putting pen to paper to, to get it out and having a complete treatment done so I can show it to my partners. I've never had to do that before. I usually work by myself and hire a team. You know, now I'm partnering with brands and I'm partnering with a label and I'm partnering with, you know, a lot of stakeholders who, you know, for them to stay excited, they got to see it. So, you know, they don't have issues with the idea. I can't just simply express them, you know, you know, verbally. I have to put them on paper and I have to create a shot list and all of that. So, you know, the challenges that come with that, I also have another book coming out in October with HarperCollins. So I'm trying to, to get this entire project out into the world before I have to start promoting the book. And i got to start promoting the book, I think, in late July. So, you know, it's a, it's a short turnaround. And from the years where I had to focus on earning and kind of building this career, music always took a back seat. And uh, cause I always felt like, oh, you don't deserve to make music. You know, you really messed yourself up and got yourself in this whole focus on making some money, focus on, you know, getting out of debt. And I'm still trying to shed that. So even now, it'll be like, hey, let's sit down and work on some music. Oh, I should check my emails. Oh, I should I should work on that promo for the book. Oh, I should, you know, set that meeting. Oh, I should, you know, sit down with my assistant and, and do some logistical work. Because sometimes it feels like the music is so much fun that it's only a treat after I get my work done. And I have to get out of that mindset and be like, no, the, the music is what we're doing now and let's do it well, and let's prioritize it over checking your emails or all the other things, the administrative things that just feel more pragmatic. I, I had to do that for so long. So what is this new book about? The new book is called Things No One Else Can Teach Us. And um, so it's a collection of stories that I, of challenges I went through in my life and um, how none of them have a happy ending, but instead, you know, they all have these moments where my perspective had to shift. And when my perspective shifted, I was able to either see, discover, or create a silver lining. 
And, and the aim of this is to empower people to do the same in their own lives, to spend less time judging their circumstances and more time finding the opportunity within them. Hmm. It's been a lot of fun and a real pleasure to talk with you. Likewise. I had a lot of fun uh, talking with you. My guest has been Humble the Poet. He's a poet, rapper, spoken word artist, and he's the author of this really wise new book, Unlearn, 101 Simple Truths for a Better Life. And he also has a new album, Righteous and Ratchet. And you can check out his videos, a lot of great stuff on YouTube, Humble the Poet, that's all you need to know. And again, Humble the Poet, thank you so much for being on the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.